Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Ali Nurani, is the president and CEO of the National Immigration Forum, uh, which is a great group. They work on immigration. You can tell it's uh, it's there in the name. Um, and he is the is the author of a, a really interesting new sort of policy analysis paper that I was reading, really interested in. Um, and so the idea of this is basically you are looking at uh, immigration in the broader context of American uh, population growth uh, changes, and um, I, I wrote a book about this. But let me <laughs> tell the, <laughs> uh, But but my book is loopy. It's called One Billion Americans. Your paper is sensible. Um, so tell us, like, what what does it say? What's what's the news here? Well, I mean, let me be clear. If, if it had been left to my own devices, I would have written a very loopy paper. But my co-author, <laughs> uh, Danilo Zak, who's on our policy team at the forum, really just brought the the, the, the rigorous goods, if you will, to the paper. So uh, I want to credit him for it right off the top. You know, the census department, U.S. Census said a few years ago, a number of years ago, that the nation is facing a gray tsunami. Um, and what they're getting at there is that, you know, we as a country are just getting older. And the data is pretty clear, right? In that one in four uh, Americans are projected to be 65 by year 2060. And 2060 feels like it's a lifetime away. And uh, so let's kind of bring it a little bit closer. So between 2010 and 2020, the number of people over the age of 65 increased 39%. The working age population only increased 4%. The number Mm -hmm. of children in the United States increased a big 0%. So, you know, we've got to be thinking about this stuff completely differently. Otherwise, this gray tsunami is really just going to overtake the country and the economy. And, and you know, the way this works economically, right, is, I mean, people work for years, decades, and then they retire. And, you know, when you retire, like, that's great, right? And you have savings, which are usually, you know, financial assets, or you have social security claims. But however it is you arrange it, you're depending on other people working, right? Like that's how economic activity happens. You could think of that very literally, like people need to do stuff for you. People need to make the things you consume, or you can do it, you know, with charts and, and complicated financial flows. But you're talking about a sort of growing ratio of retirement age people to working age people. Like it's fine as an individual to get old, but it's not It's not super in the interests of society to become like that. And, and, you know, the challenge of this is that, you know, the way I've been thinking about this is that you have your kind of the the demographic math of kind of the country getting older in a large scale. And that just feels very abstract to people because people are like, okay, that's happening to somebody else. But then you also have kind of the math of the checkbook. So, you know, one of the examples I've been trying to just try to, you know, kind of drill this down. So according to AARP, at a pre-retirement expense of $50,000, you would need on average $40,000 of income. So roughly speaking, that's about $16,000 a year in savings and about $24,000 or $2,000 a month from Social Security Administration. So Mm -hmm. that $2,000 right now is guaranteed until it isn't, right? So for that person who right now is, let's just say 58 years old, 
making the median income of $56,000 and they want to retire by 2034. Well, 2034 is the exact year where the Social Security Administration is saying that their reserves are going to be, quote, depleted. Mm -hmm. So that $2,000 becomes increasingly precarious as we go through time. And one of the only ways that to, to kind of buck up or, or solidify that $2,000 is to increase immigration and to increase the working age population in the United States. I think this is important because, you know, I do think that one of the things you hear, I think most commonly from, from grassroots people who are skeptical of immigrants and of immigration, is that they are concerned that social programs for immigrants will crowd out programs for themselves, right? You know, I, I mean, I guess we, we sort of call this in, in political science, uh, welfare chauvinism, that people see people who don't look like them taking advantage of programs, and they become suspicious. And, you know, I think there's there's a psychological dimension to that. There's a, there's a bias element, there's a prejudice element, but there's also just a question of facts, right? Like, you, you might think, that if some other people come here and some of them get help with something or other, that leaves less for you. Uh, but what you're saying is that it, it actually creates more space for retirement programs. It does. And kind of like the, the politics are so are, are just inextricably, inextricably connected to the policy here. But the challenges of the politics are really tough. So 13% of the population these days is between the ages of 55 and 64. The most common age for a white American is 58. Mm -hmm. That's a longer way of saying there are a lot of white folks who are going to be retiring fairly soon. But then when you look at the polling data, 22% of Republicans, and I'm making an assumption here, over the age of 50 feel immigrants are a, a net negative to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, so we got to figure out the politics. But then that's why we, we are trying to reshape the policy conversation around the self-interest of that individual. Um, and asking that individual, okay, who is going to help pay for your retirement? So what we did, we focused in on a, a metric called the old age dependency ratio. Mm -hmm. And this, in essence, is the ratio of working age adults to those who are retired. In 1965, when you know Social Security came into being, uh, there were 6.4 working age adults per retiree. That number started to go down so that in 2005, it was 5.4 working age adults per retiree. Right now, that number is 3.54. So we're on a downward trajectory in terms of working age adults when we're on an upward trajectory in terms of retirees. And, and the proposal here, right, is essentially, well, we should adjust immigration policy to try to stabilize and, and improve this ratio. So like, what does that mean? I mean, it, me it, means, it means more immigrants, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> but like, but like how, how many more? So it means uh, to kind of get to the punchline, it means that we as a country need to be recruiting 370,000 additional immigrants per year in order to maintain that old age dependency ratio of 3.54. So we're not advocating for a massive increase to move that ratio up. We're saying let's just continue to tread water so that we are stretching out the viability of the Social Security system, local tax bases, much less uh, openings and across the labor market. So 370,000 people is roughly a 37% increase because right now in the United States, we bring in about a million immigrants per year, and that's across family visas, work visas, and humanitarian visas. I mean, do you have a view like what kind of visas we should give to sort of increase that cap, right? Because in some ways you could think, well, okay, if we're trying to, um, you know, manipulate the dependency ratio, right? We should really, really prioritize like people who are in the early 20s, uh, which may not be how the sort of existing visa systems, uh, you know, actually go go to work. But obviously, it's like if you come because the immigrants themselves retire and, and get Social Security. But if you work a full 35, 45 years, that makes an incredible contribution. Whereas if somebody comes over and they're 52, that may not actually, you know, achieve the kind of policy benefits here. So there's a couple things here. So the median age for the U.S. right now is about 38. The average age of an immigrant who comes to the U.S. is 31. Um, so they've got an additional seven years at least of working age time, if you will, mm -hmm. than people who are already here. So even when we project out all the way to 2060, if we were to, to maintain this, this rate of 3.54, we would have 10 working age immigrants per retiree. So, mm -hmm. and what I'm getting at here is that in this paper, we didn't address that question of, do we need 
more farm workers or more engineers. What we're saying is that one thing that we know is that we need more working age immigrants and they can come as workers. They can come as family members. So even if that individual is coming as like a 55 year old, chances are really good that they have a younger family with them who are going to spend their the entirety, if you will, or nearly the entirety of their working age time uh, here in the United States contributing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, one point, you know, I've been making in sort of immigration conversations is it really depends where you set the overall numerical target for. There's a lot of ideas about immigration that, you know, could make some sense, right? Like maybe we should let more people like this, maybe more like that. But the way Congress has been thinking about this legislation is always, well, a new visa for somebody has to be taken away from somebody else. And that's created a very blocked process, right, in terms of any specific business objectives or, you know, economic goals. You know, and it raises the question of why, right? Like, what is the point of globally capping immigration at at the level we have now? I, I guess there's a contrary view, which is that, like, there shouldn't be any quantitative limit at all, that there should be some kind of, um, I don't know what, just like objective criteria, and then anybody who meets it kind of comes in. Um, so I, what do you think about that? So yeah, I mean, up to this point, Congress has approached immigration as a zero-sum game or just a mm-hmm. fixed pie. And that's frankly a big, big reason why we titled this report that America has room to grow. In fact, America needs to grow. Um, so you have kind of a zero-sum approach. Doug holtz Eakin from the American Action Forum, who you know, is one of the leading kind of conservative thinkers on kind of immigration mm-hmm. issues, his take on this was that we should set up a point system and anybody who qualifies under that point system should be able to apply for it to enter, enter the country. So mm-hmm. they tried to kind of you know thread the needle between something that's very much based on what our economic needs are, but eliminating kind of that cap. Our take on this is that you know, in t- back in 2013, the Senate passed uh, a comprehensive immigration reform bill. And what they did to kind of shorthand it is that they looked across different parts of the labor market and they said, OK, if unemployment goes down in the construction sector, number of construction visas go up, you know, and vice versa, which is great because then, you know, we'd actually have a dynamic immigration system as opposed to a static system that we have now. So there are a lot of kind of visa specific options that have been put forward. But they're never in the context of what are the demographic needs of the country writ large. They're always kind of backed into this corner of an extra visa here means one less visa there. Right. Um, And that is just it's a self-limiting approach to economic growth. Well, and I think, you know, I've been following this sort of um, big picture public opinion data. And an interesting thing is that for the first time, I think on on record, Gallup shows that more people say we should have more immigrants than say we should have fewer. And even though there were some real legislative close calls in 2007 and 2013, in both of those cases, you had sort of bipartisan legislative coalitions that were on some level, swimming against the tide of public opinion. I mean, I think I think a lot of the components of, of those bills did pull well and are, are things people supported. But if you just put it to people generically, like, should we have more immigrants? That was not a big winner back in those days, whereas now it seems like there's more openness to the sort of general concept. But the political pathway, I feel like, has gotten paradoxically narrower, right? I mean, you don't mm-hmm. Doug Holtzikin is a nice guy, but like I, I feel like the support on the conservative side for openness to immigration has sort of gone away. Well, so we do a lot of work in the conservative space. Uh, so mm-hmm. let, let me get there in a second. You said something really, really important uh, that I don't think a lot of people realize. The toughest part about any sort of immigration legislation is always future flow. In essence, kind of what's the number of immigrants to allow in the future? Oftentimes the press will say, oh, well, it's about the undocumented on a path to citizenship or border security. No, I mean, those are problems that you can kind of like negotiate and solve in a political context and in a policy context. In 2013, in 2006, and in 2007, those bills fell apart to a large degree because members of Congress could not reach a compromise on future flow. So that's always been the toughest nut to crack. I think that, you know, one of the few upsides to the pandemic is that I think the American public has really come to understand the value of immigrants in the essential economy, nurses, doctors, farm workers, transportation, 
all disproportionately represented are immigrant communities within those, those sectors. So I think people have come to realize the importance of immigrants who are here. And that's what the polling says. The question of, okay, folks in the future, that, that kind of, we keep running into that. And our take on this is that we have been too reliant on the business community to make an economic case. When they mm-hmm. talk about the need for immigrants, the American public sees it as a bottom line interest on their part. Mm-hmm. So the way we try to approach this is really much more through a cultural conversation by engaging conservative faith leaders, law enforcement and others so that they are speaking to the need for immigrants from more of a social and a cultural perspective and less from a, you know, we need more workers, which is it's, it's a nuanced conversation, but it resonates in a much more powerful way. And it's a constructive part of the debate that's happening within the conservative community right now. Of, okay, what is, what does the Republican Party look like moving forward? Okay, let's let's take a break, and I, I want to come back to that cultural conversation. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. One of the things that I think really pops out if you start studying the country's demographics is that not only are we aging, but we're not aging evenly. And there's sort of big swaths of the country where the working age population is shrinking, um, even as it grows slowly in in other places. Uh, And even there there are rural areas, especially, but also some like Midwestern cities, cities with bad weather that are sort of emptying out of people. And I feel like that's both where you get the kind of the strongest case for, well, we should have more people come in, but it's also where the sensitivities, I think, can be greatest because, you know, people who live in New York, people who live in Los Angeles, they, whether they're immigrants or natives, they want to live in immigrant entrepots. They they want that diversity, that dynamism. But people who like small towns value the sense of community and stability and don't, I think, necessarily want to see like an accelerant of demographic change. So- Back in 2010, so let me take a even a step further back. So the National Immigration Forum was founded in 82. We've always kind of had kind of coalition building as part of our DNA. I landed there in the middle of 2008, and in 2008, 9, and 10, we ran a very kind of a progressive strategy because, you know, we all thought progressives would win the day. Clearly didn't work out that way. <laughs> but in 2011, what we decided is that we were going to figure out how to expand the conversation around immigration across the country. And we looked at four maps. We looked at the first map was the 2010 DREAM Act vote. And that gave us a map of kind of where we needed to work. 
It was the Southeast, the Midwest, and the Mountain West. Mm. Then we looked at the number of adults who identify as evangelical Christian. Those three regions, Southeast, Midwest, Mountain West, have the highest number of evangelical Christians. They also have the highest density of state local law enforcement. And then to get to your point, those three regions had the fastest growth between 2000 and 2010 in the foreign-born population. Mm. Because that's where the jobs were. And that's where, you know, the, the people were getting older and jobs were, were and businesses were moving because there was a workforce that was moving there too. So since then, we have focused all of our resources pretty much on the Southeast, the Midwest, and the Mountain West. And you begin to see like a, a, a town like a Storm Lake, Iowa. It's about, I think, 7,000 people upper uh, kind of Northwest of, of Iowa. It's one of the part of one of the only counties in the state that are growing because the way the immigrant community is moving there. And there's tensions that come with it, but you, you see the civic leadership saying, you know what, we're going to recruit immigrants here because they are, in essence, kind of our path to sustainability. But then you kind of move to the eastern part of the state. Town leadership on the eastern part of the state are much more anti-immigrant, and they're pushing immigrants out, and they're losing a tax base. Mm -hmm. So all these things are playing out, like you said, in a really interesting and important way. And I just think it, it it behooves us to, to kind of pay attention to those dynamics because that's where the politics are. Now, what I wonder is, is do you think there's a way to create some kind of choice and, and optionality in there? You know, because I've been to, say, um, Lewiston, Maine, right, which is a town that, uh, you know, was hurting, I think, because of mill closures, population loss. It had been the center of a kind of, you know, industrial era Maine, but, but had been losing out. Now there's a um, a fair number of Somali people there, you know, refugees and, and other immigrants. And and to me, as like a, a big city person, like it's great, right? It's made Lewiston one of the most interesting towns in Maine. And if you compare it to like Millinocket or other mill towns that are just shrinking, it, it seems just way better to me. Like you have stores, you have people, you have a tax base, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously just like not everybody agrees with that. Like there's a bunch of people in, in Northern Maine voting for Paula Page, voting for Donald Trump. And could there be a way to say, look, uh, there's trade-offs here. There's a strong economic community dynamism case for immigration. But if you don't buy that, like in your town, you don't have to have the immigrants, like let, let them go to the places where the community and the mayor does want them. Well, don't take this the wrong way, but uh, Donald Trump did try that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he tried a version of it. So what, what Trump said was, well, you can opt out. Right, right. right. But I mean, my question is, is can we create a, a system where you can opt in? So there's a lot of there are some great initiatives across the country, like Welcoming America and other organizations that are uh, really working with kind of civic leadership in small cities and towns and helping them kind of make the case that they want to be seen as recruiters of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And to kind of go back to the paper, one of the policy tools that are in the Biden that are in the Biden toolbox that you don't need Congress for is to increase the refugee resettlement cap. Because remember, Trump brought that down to 15,000. Biden wants to take it up to, I believe, 62,000 this fiscal year and up to 125 next year. He can increase that number. And by and large, refugees are moving to the middle of the country. Refugees mm -hmm. are also oftentimes welcomed with open arms by conservative, Catholic and evangelical churches, as well as the Mormon community. So that's a way to both kind of bring refugees into communities, help them integrate into resettle, but also to, to meet kind of critical economic bottom line needs in you know, the Midwest and the Southwest or Southeast. And that's interesting. So refugees, when Biden moves that cap, that doesn't impact other kind of visa categories. That's a sort of a, a loophole. Are there other um, sort of keyholes like that that you would recommend that the administration go forward with? So, you know, so you've got the refugee cap. I mean, they, they can set that. They, they have the ability to set that at a number that, and it depends on a number of factors, right? The pipeline of, of refugees coming in overseas. But, you know, right now there are 70 million people forcibly displaced. Plenty yeah, of displaced people right now. Right. But then also the resettlement infrastructure in the States. But those are problems that you can solve. Mm -hmm. Um Another program, so the H2B program, which serves a lot of kind of the service industry. So Trump changed that number based on executive actions. Um, so really H2B and refugee resettlement, to my knowledge, are kind of one of the, the, the few ways that the executive branch can change immigration uh, kind of lo immigration levels. 
H two B is that that's the sort of a, a skilled worker guest worker program. I would say it's um, how to best describe it. It falls in between your H two A program, which is your agriculture, and your H one B, which is your high tech. So this is you know light manufacturing, tourism, food processing. Those are typically oh. the industries that are served. The immigration system is a realm of sort of endless complications. It's batshit crazy. <laughs> in that spirit, as long as I have an expert here, wh- what should we think about what's going on at the southern border, where Trump obviously took a number of measures over the years, and then there was a pandemic, and there were more measures on top of that. Um, now there's a new president. Um, it seems like there's some new policies coming from the Mexican government. Uh, and I have been, you know, I'm a curious person, uh, but I I was struggling by just sort of casually reading the news to understand what's happening there. Yeah, so it's there's a lot going on at the border, but it is nowhere near the crisis that we've seen in the past. So what Trump did is that he tried to close our border even before you know the pandemic hit. He was moving people back to Mexico while their asylum cases were being processed. He was leveraging the Mexican government to treat people terribly as they were leaving Guatemala. It was just a chaos up and down, you know, from the U.S.-Mexico border down to Honduras. What's happening now is that a few things. Number one, in November, the Mexican government passed a law that said that they would no longer detain migrant families. So what that meant is that they now had the legal ability to tell the U.S., no, we're not. We're not taking the families that you're turning back around while their asylum cases are being heard. Today, at this point, that law is being implemented in some parts of the region and in other parts of the region, Mexico is still taking people back. So it's there's not a uniform kind of policy coming from the Mexican side. That's number one. Number two is that when the pandemic hit, Trump used Article 42, which more or less says that because of a public health crisis, they can expel people. And what that means is that, you know, if I'm crossing and even asking for asylum, I'm not processed to be detained or deported. I'm just turned back around. So what that means now is that when you see this news that there's a, quote, surge or crisis at the border, the reality is that that number could be, I think I saw today, about 77,000 crossings uh, or apprehensions in January. But almost 40% of those apprehensions were recidivism, meaning that that real number of people actually crossing is probably lower because what, what's happening is that as people are being expelled, they're not being put into a system necessarily, and they're just kind of turning around and saying, okay, we're going to try again. All this to say, what's needed from the Biden administration is not to see this as a surge of migrants coming to the border, but they need to have a surge of resources at the border, immigration judges, asylum officers, facilities so that people can be safe and healthy while their cases are being heard, and then resources to community-based organizations who ultimately are helping people you know, go through the process. The problem is that the presser is saying, you know, the world is ending. People are storming across the border. That's just not the case. These are people who have been there and the numbers are nowhere near the, the numbers that we saw in 2018 or 19. I mean, one thing is just we we have a kind of a changing of the, the narrative at, at the border several times over, over the past few years, where for a long time, there was a paradigm of people, I would say, like trying to sneak it. And then we had the new era of asylum seekers who they were being quote unquote apprehended, but that was sort of the desired outcome, You're right? right? Was they were going to be apprehended, then they were going to make the asylum petition. Now, because of Trump's expulsion order, we're almost back to the earlier situation in which you say people are being expelled and then they're, they're sort of ping-ponging back and forth between Mexico and the United States in this kind of limbo because Mexico won't do the detentions, the United States is not processing applications, and we're going to have to to do something with that. But the Biden administration, as I understand it, at least, they don't want to signal to people living in Central America that the floodgates are now open. Right, that their concern is that if they make policy changes that are more humane, that people who are in Central America, who don't necessarily have migrants' best interests at heart, who have financial motives for people to come north, will exaggerate and spin what the changes are to encourage a sort of big influx. And then essentially the problem will recur. Like, is that crazy or is that a reasonable concern? 
So I was uh, back in 2019. I did a couple trips to Honduras. Um, mm-hmm. Spent some time in San Pedro Sula, Tegucigalpa, and even spent a couple of days on Coffee Highlands, talking to people to try to get a sense of okay, what are they hearing and why are they making this journey? So first of all, the situation in Central America is more complicated than just violence. There is mm-hmm. ma- ramp corruption, impunity, poverty. There, Honduras is one of the most economically unequal countries in the world. Um, so all these factors combine so that, you know, I, I met with a, a farmer in the La Union uh, region, which is about it was a three hour drive from Tegucigalpa. And he had a small plot of land. He had just enough crop every year to make a small profit, put a metal roof on his on his home. Then a coffee rust hit, then a drought hit, uh, and the coffee market started to crater. And, you know, and he's reading in the news and hearing from the coyotes in town Hey, give me $8,000 and I'll get you to the U.S.-Mexico border. So he and his wife makes this, make this decision that Carlos, who's his name, and his daughter were going to pay a smuggler $8,000 to get to the border. And this happened in you know late 2018. He gets to the border, turns himself in, right? He's counted as an apprehension, but in reality, he's applying for asylum. And his wife, I remember, she tells me he has been punished for telling the truth. All he wants to do is you know, make life better. And you know what he did is that he told the asylum officer, the CBP officer, that he was coming for economic reasons. So he gets turned back around. But the thing, and what you're getting at is absolutely true, because whether it's Carlos today or somebody else, the human smuggler is going to tell them, pay me $8,000, I'll get you to the border. That's why I think what the Biden administration is doing in terms of a four-year, $4 billion commitment to Central America to address corruption, violence, poverty, impunity, begins to long-term chip away at some of these issues that are driving people away. They're also going to put back into place a program called the Central American Miners Program that allows unaccompanied children to seek protection closer to home as opposed to turning themselves over to smugglers to get to the border. So you're absolutely right. I think it's, you know, the Biden folks have got to put in place smart policy solutions that don't finance the cartels, but that ultimately provide some amount of protection to people there. And I mean, if you can, if you can have a program that sort of assesses claims in country, then you can help people who are going to get help without creating the sort of financial incentive to roll the dice. I mean, because of course, I mean, whatever you think of, of Carlos and, and his situation, I mean, I'm incredibly sympathetic you know, to, to economic migrants. But the worst thing we could possibly do is have people giving away their savings, taking incredible risks with right. life, showing up at the border, and then it turns out, no, like that's not a legitimate reason, right? I mean, what, it's a bad situation there in, in the highlands, but it's it's made so much worse if you sort of go on a completely futile journey. So creating some kind of clarity for people does seem important. But I mean, I always wonder, right, the, the legal system makes this very sharp distinction between a sort of legitimate cause of asylum and a generalized, you know, I, I don't want to be here kind of thing. But I always think about, you know, what I remember my great grandparents telling me. And I, I don't know, like, if I put that story together, like, was that an asylum claim? Or did they just not like being poor in the Pale of Settlement, Jewish people, and there was a lot of anti-Semites around, but were they quote unquote persecuted or did they just think there would be a better life in America? It seems very odd to me. So there's a great book that was uh, published last year written by Jia Lin Yang, who's an editor with the New York Times. Mm-hmm. The book is a, a Mighty and Irresistible Tide. And she tells the story of the nation's immigration debate between 1924 and 1965. And the politics and the people who were involved in trying to put into place, for example, the nation's refugee resettlement program, the people who were trying to drag it down, you know, all the dynamics that got us to the 1965 Immigration Act. And all of those questions, okay, what is really persecution? And ultimately, what's the role of the United States in providing people protection from persecution? These are not new questions for us. And the problem is that Our immigration laws are built around a world that existed in 1965 or earlier, not a world that exists in 2021. Let let me take another break, and and then I want to ask you about what that means exactly. So, I mean, how how has the world changed since since 1965 in in a way that you think is relevant to this? I mean, obviously, the demographic change is is part of that, uh, but uh, a lot has 
has changed. We're talking two generations ago. So in 1965, you know, the, the world was just at the early stages of globalization, right? That was a time when people could just begin to travel. It's something to begin, uh, beginning to be affordable. Now, money, people, information, goods move across borders uh, at a nominal, relatively nominal expense. You know, or I think our trade policies are always trying to catch up to that. But our migration policies never try to catch up to that. Um, so then as a country, how do we make sure, and kind of going back to, you know, that old age dependency ratio. In 1965, if we had almost six and a half working age adults per retiree, we're now less than half or 3.5 now. What are we going to do to take advantage of the movement of people that exist now to actually stabilize our population? Uh-huh. And what we've done for the last few decades is think about immigration as something that we want to avoid or try to mitigate, then try to actually see as an asset to our long-term viability. To me, that's absolutely critical, right? That if you think of immigration as a problem primarily right. uh, versus if you think of it as an asset in which you know, as with anything, like you, you might want to ask questions about exactly who is arriving or under what circumstance. But if you have a presumption that a strength of the United States of America is that a lot of people would like to come here, and that a strength of the United States of America is that we have a lot of space, we have a lot of freshwater resources, we have a lot of, I don't know, it's a good place to live, all things mm-hmm. considered. Right. So people want to come here, and that's good. And we should try to take advantage of that is a very different paradigm from, okay, well, who do we have to let in because there's some, you know, cosmic uh, legal obligation, right? Um, and and you could have sort of regular channels, because it's like, nobody wants people, you know, showing up at the border, g- going through fences, but there's no, there's sort of no proper, proper way to do it. So when, when you look at the polling and when you, when you talk to people, it's kind of exactly that. It's there's this perception that we don't have control over our borders or control over our immigration system, which is really what Trump was able to tap into. It's like, I am going to control everything. So if we can actually put together a system that adds control to the immigration system, then I think it will build confidence in the, in the public's eyes that, okay, you know, we're letting in the people that serve our needs. And the question will be, can that control be set up in a way, like you said, doesn't treat immigrants as a threat, but really treats them as, a, as an asset? And what do we think is going on in Mexico, in the, in the Mexican government's side? Because, I mean, I think I've spoken to some, some Mexican people and, you know, I mean, you want to talk about sort of sense of control, right? I mean, I think obviously they don't want to just be a transit route for, you know, huge numbers of, of people who are obviously not Mexican. They're not even trying to immigrate to Mexico. They have their own problems over there. Um, and, and you know, that feels like a, like a reasonable concern to me. And now they are, I, I guess, the Trump administration kind of wanted to set it up that Mexico would be kind of do his dirty work for him, right? And kind of be the, the jailers of would-be migrants. Um, and is, are they backing away from that? role? Are they looking for something from the Biden administration? I think it's a little bit early to tell how the AMLO or the Lopez Obrador administration is going to engage with Biden on on questions of immigration. But what they have done, at least over the course of the Trump administration, is that they deployed their federal police to their southern border to really try to clamp down. And there's news reports that's starting to to ease up a little bit. But the thing Mm -hmm. is that Mexico doesn't really have a, like, they don't really have a border patrol. They don't have a trained uh, immigration enforcement set of officers. They have a very kind of early stage asylum system that's very complicated and very arcane. You know, when the migrant route started uh, over the last few years through Mexico, they started to put into place some kind of humanitarian visa opportunities that allowed people to work. But there was a lot of chaos in terms of some employers were accepting those visas, others were not. But I mean, in the long run, Mexico is also facing, you know, a decline in fertility. Um, nothing as extreme as what we're seeing in the States. But, you know, I think one of the other good things that the Biden folks are doing are there is they're taking a regional approach to migration and really trying to think about, okay, what does the region itself need? And then how does mm-hmm. the region itself control and, and, and manage migration? And that's just going to take a lot of time and work between, you know, the State Department and, and the Mexican government to figure out. 
In terms of those sort of regional flows, are there more people coming from out of the region? I mean, I was struck a few years ago. I was in San Antonio for for family reasons, uh, but I'm a curious person, so I was poking around. You know, and I saw people there, you know, nonprofits, and they were working with refugees who had come or would be uh, asylum seekers, I guess, not not refugees, but who had come from Africa, you know, and had made this incredibly long journey. And I guess the resources didn't exist closer to the border uh, for, with the languages, things like that. And they'd been sort of forward up to the larger city. And that was something that that shifted me a little closer to sympathizing with Trump's position, to be honest, uh, because it made it seem like that the the asylum process was becoming more of a magnet than really anybody wanted it to be. So, so again, when I was back, when I was in Honduras and 19, I also spent a few days in, in El Paso and went into Juarez and visited with folks in shelters. And I remember talking to a couple of, a handful of folks from Cameroon. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had, I'm not an immigration attorney. I just play one on podcasts, <laughs> but they had pretty clear cut asylum cases, right? They were mm-hmm. politically persecuted victims of severe violence. And the reason they were coming through Mexico to the Mexican border is that they saw that as one of the only ways to actually have a, to get a fair hearing because they weren't seeing that opportunity in airports and other places. Um, and it was just, it was more expensive to, to kind of fly directly into the U S because also you'd have to kind of transit through TSA checkpoints overseas, et cetera. So, and these were legit asylum cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue probably more legit than folks who are coming from Honduras as economic migrants. So the problem here is not the asylum system per se. It is really the immigration system from a legal immigration perspective mm-hmm. in terms of actually having pathways that meet the needs of our workforce and our demography that we just don't have in place. Because, you know, that guy that I talked to in the Highlands, Carlos, he is working age. His family is going to be contributing for a long time. That is the kind of family that we would love to have in the United States to help sustain our social security system. But there's no legal pathway for him to make that journey. So he's left to say, OK, I need asylum. And this is where, you know, I, I come down to is that ultimately you need a legal pathway. Because I think the clash in our institutions is that we think of spot asylum claims as people who've been forced out of their homes. So you're you're in the next place over and you're, oh, my God, I need asylum. Right. But in a more networked, more globalized world, people go further. People can take these weird routes uh, around. But that's not what that we're not set up to process claims you know, in that way, on that volume, but that if you see the case for more immigration, then you can have much more regularized channels, right? And you can say, look, it's beneficial to the country if working age people are coming here. Um, So we should create a mechanism for them to do that. And, you know, get a, I don't know what, background check or, you know, right. I, you, you set it infectious up. disease screening is like a reasonable thing, but are people, people should be invited to, to come. Do you see that gaining any, any steam on Capitol Hill? Like when people talk about this, because the latest thing I've seen is focused on less legal immigration. Yeah. So I think in the near term, uh, meaning say the next three to six months, we're going to see efforts on the Hill to address dreamers, who are here and undocumented or DACA recipients, right. those who have temporary protected status, and then legalization of farm workers. Mm-hmm. And that, again, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, is kind of addressing the population that's here. Then I think if we can get through the midterm and there continues to be a separation between your far-right extremist element of the Republican Party and a part of the Republican Party that's looking for a more moderate approach to immigration, then we can start to build out the legislative coalition necessary to actually mm-hmm. address legal immigration. Because the support is there in the public, but we need to kind of figure out a way to, to thread the political needle so that, frankly, a Republican doesn't doesn't lose their primary because they take a <laughs> position on uh, right. you know increased legal immigration. So Trump seems to have actually done somewhat better in like immigrant heavy communities in in 2020 than he had in in 2016, which I've seen some people read as. Well, this just goes to show there's like no electoral penalty to these these hard right policies. I guess I would hope to spend it the other way that, you know, Republicans 
you know, politicians want to get reelected. And of course, you don't want to make immigration changes if the perception is, well, Democrats have this like demographic doomsday machine that will destroy them forever. Um, so I, I always kind of want to tell Republicans that it's like, look, if Donald Trump can win Asian and Latino votes, like, so, so can you. Like, what if what if you tried? <laughs> but so, so this is this is what I've never quite understood. This is let me put it this way. The case that we're making to Republicans, Democrats, the administration is that as they are talking about immigration changes moving forward, it is not just about the Latino or the Asian vote. That vote is there's always going to be a large percentage of those voters who care about these issues. Uh-huh. Actually, if you can make the case to suburban voters and particularly suburban women who are turned off by child separation, who were turned away from Trump and the Republican Party, both in 18 and 20, that's how you actually build a new vote coalition around immigration issues. So, you know, I, I think like Democrats, Democrats often they, they kind of see this as we're going to protect our base and we're going to hope that it's big enough. Trump, to his credit, <laughs> he said, I got my base and I'm going to go after some of their base too. And he made an economic and kind of a authoritarian case to a lot of Latino males that said, okay, you know what? This resonates with me. And I just think like both parties have got to be thinking about how they're expanding their coalitions as opposed to kind of solidifying and and retrenching them. Yeah. And I just kind of hope people see the merits of creative thinking there, right? I mean, whether I agree with the pitch or not, uh, but just that it's it's a little bit less of this kind of fixed trench warfare than I think it's sometimes portrayed as, right? Like there's a lot of kind of possibilities out there. Um, Now, do you see people, you know, because you're talking about, right, there was a lot of people had a very strong moralistic reaction to some of the things Trump did. It was, it was cruel. It was, you know, not, not in our name, you know, that, that kind of instinct. Um, But do you, do you see people connecting with the kind of big picture economic case that you're making in this? Like, this is in my book, too. Like, I, it's very near and dear to my heart that, like, this is the, the path to success and dynamism in the future. But I, I'm not sure I, we're having that much success. So this is why I'm thinking, we're, you know, kind of going back to where I started, right? Because, like, the math of demographics, they move slow and they're abstract. The math of a checkbook, it's real. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. It is right in front of you every day. So that's why we're trying to think about like this old age dependency ratio and the solvency of Social Security fund in the context of that 58 year old white male who is hoping to retire in 15 years saying, OK, can I budget for Social Security in my retirement uh-huh. um, and trying to understand what his self-interest is, both for him and his family. And I just think like whether you're, you're kind of thought leaders, advocates or activists. The folks who are trying to persuade, what's right in front of them is their checkbook, not the demographics of the United States. And this is kind of a subtle thing that political leaders could do, right? I mean, the, the Social Security Trustees Report models a few different things, uh, but you can put that out more clearly from a CBO perspective, from a White House Council of Economic Advisors, and show people um, under under current law, the way Social Security works is there's an automatic benefits cut when you hit this kind of trust fund depletion. And if you have more immigration, uh, that pushes out into the future. And it means in concrete terms, you know, more money for for retirees. Uh, But right now, that's sort of like buried in the footnotes of these um, trustees reports, but like, you can try to dramatize it, right? You can put you can wrap stories around this. There's there's so many stories that you can kind of use to illustrate these changes. I mean, Folks living in rural rural parts of the country, they know their towns are struggling to survive. So mm-hmm. how do you kind of paint the picture that, okay, if immigrants come, you know, settle in your town, yes, there will be challenges, but we can we can address those challenges. Because the you know, hundred dollars that that family spends at the grocery store every two weeks, how much of that is going to the local tax base? Mm-hmm. And just like being that granular in, t- in terms of kind of the stories and the conversations we're having, you know, the organization People's Action did some great deep canvassing work across the country in rural parts of the nation around immigration. And these are the kinds of conversations they were having. And people were like they'd start the conversation dead set against immigration. And then you kind of go through it and, OK, let's think about this differently. And I think from a economic self-interest perspective, you can tell the stories that resonate with people so that folks at least start to kind of think about this differently as opposed to saying, you know what, I don't want anybody in my town that doesn't look or sound like me because that's our starting point. 
And I do think, you know, I was very um, interested in the, I don't know if you know Justin Guest's book, uh, The yeah. New Minority, but it's it's interesting what, what he says, you know, where people, um, non-college white people in, in, in the Midwest feel that sort of elite actors don't care about them. And there's a way of talking about immigration that really centers the migrants and your kind of concern for them, which like I think is great. I'm I'm concerned for for everybody. But you know, what you're talking about is talking to people, to native-born people, about their lives and their communities and the problems that they see visibly there with you know, with local taxes, with the vitality of the local retail economy, with their social security benefits, things like that, and talking about immigration as a way to address your problems rather than as a totally abstract cosmopolitan commitment. Trump would even tie the opioid crisis to immigration. He did it in his speeches. He did it in uh, cabinet room, roundtable meetings. He was very disciplined about this. And that's what the opposition does is they take any kind of social challenge or economic challenge that people face and say it's immigrants' faults. Right. Um, So let's, let's think about what those challenges are and make the reverse case of, okay, you're worried about your retirement. You're worried about your local tax base. You're worried about whether or not there's going to be a doctor or a nurse in your local health clinic. Mm-hmm. So what's the role of immigrants in terms of addressing those challenges in a constructive way? I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. Um, Ali Narani, uh, thank you so much uh, for, for your time. Before I let you go, I mean, is there anything uh, last minute? Uh, what, do, what do people need to know here? Well, I mean, I, I think that the most important thing here is um, it is so much about the language that we use. And if we don't use language that understands, empathizes, although, to be honest with you, I'm a little tired of that term. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to say it, that understands the challenges that people are facing today. We're never going to actually persuade someone to think differently. And it may not be you or me that that is the most persuasive person for a lot of folks in this country, but it is certainly their pastor, their police chief, their small business owner who can help people understand how the world is changing and why immigrants are a, are a way to, to help the country and American workers and their families thrive. All right. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much. Hey, thank you. This is a, a lot of great, great thought. I think a you know, promising kind of path forward. Thanks as always uh, to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Jamaicus, uh, and Louise will be back on Tuesday. Mm-hmm.